0: Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. One of the more common things I see men struggle with is how do you break out of this sort of people-pleasing fixation that so many of us carry? It's the curse of the nice guy and the nice girl. You always need to be getting your approval and validation over there, quote unquote. It seems that if this was a strategy that we used as children, unaddressed, this coping pattern will continue to assert itself, showing us in spades that simply pleasing others with our niceness is an insufficient strategy if we're to navigate our lives in a more heroic and authentic way. I used to be a full-on people pleaser, no shit. Many from my past will remember this side of me. I was a nice guy, ugh. Now I see that it was all part of my development as a man. I needed to outgrow this immature, validation-seeking part of myself. And I had many great teachers along the way, particularly when I got involved with the Mankind Project. And I remember those first men's groups in MKP. I could not believe how these guys spoke to one another. There was a rough-and-tumble honesty among the men and complete disregard for being nicey-nice. These men commanded respect with their truthfulness and authenticity, and I was drawn right in. It wasn't that they were being assholes, although sometimes this happened when a man was triggered. Instead, they had a freedom of expression that was not bound by the nice guy mold. And I used these chapters in my life to grow past the happy-go-lucky Tony that was such a dominant part of my young adult life. And the warrior archetype would finish him off for good in my 40s as my inner strength as a man grew. I still know many men that are hemmed in by incessant people-pleasing. It's pretty widespread. And my guest today wrote a great book about it and knows a lot about this topic. And I'm looking forward to dialoguing with him today. James Rapson has been an innovator in the field of personal and professional development for over 20 years. A former psychotherapist, his focus is now on training and coaching. He is an internationally published author and nationally recognized speaker and workshop leader. And he also co authored the book, Anxious to Please Seven Revolutionary Practices for the Chronically Nice, with longtime friend and collaborator Craig English. Here is my interview with James Rapson. Okay, I am here with James Rapson, longtime psychotherapist and coach, author James Rapson. James, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Tony. It's really good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Your name came up with a mutual friend of ours, and you know, I know that you've you've been along. You're not a practicing psychotherapist anymore, but. I have two groups that I absolutely love making episodes with. One is psychotherapists because they have such a you know unique insight into the human condition. The other one is mystics that write books about mysticism and the mystery of life. I just I love those episodes, so I was really excited to connect with you. And I guess my first question: How did you first get into kind of uh, you know psychotherapy? How did you first start getting interested in the human condition where you became a therapist and such?
1: You know, I think my path, uh, as I've found over the years, and I did psychotherapy for 20 years, uh, and, uh, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, I kind of did what a lot of, uh, sort of old, uh, psychotherapists do. I transitioned to coaching and getting into the field is a path that, and maybe you found this through your interviews and through your friendships, a lot of them did, uh, I, I grew up as kind of a church brat, you know, there's, there's things like a stage brat, you know, a kid who grows up in the theater. I was a church brat. I my family, uh, went, uh you know, uh, you know, uh, two or three times a week at church and my dad taught at a Christian college and, uh, and, uh, through that in the process of my growing and migrating spirituality, uh, eventually found that my place was not really necessarily in, uh, organized religion, but. My desire to be involved in the growth process and following the spirit uh, eventually took me to the psyche, which uh, you may be aware is, is another word for spirit. But the mind and the development of the mind, and I found that, uh, that it really drew me and, and fascinated me and uh, and the deeper I got into psychology, the the more that I just found that was that was really my place. You, know, you talk about a field with with legs, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it's something that after 30 plus years, I just continue to be fascinated, you know, in my off time and, and everything. There's just nothing that fascinates me deeper, deep, more deeply. But I also love the the activity of it, just sitting with people and uh, and. Telling stories, and you know, yeah. when you consider uh, the gravity of some of the places, the dark places where people are at, my goodness, we laugh a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and 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 so forth. So anyway, uh, that that's how I got in.
0: That's great. How how did things shift for you when you went from being a psychotherapist to being a coach? Like what, what, what drew you to take that angle? I know that's a common path for psychotherapists. Maybe they do something, you know, they, they see clients for 15, 20 years, and then they go into coaching. What was it that kind of drew you in? Were you looking for different sorts of conversation or different focus? What was it that, that pulled you in that direction?
1: I think for me, I just found myself doing it. Um, mm-hmm i i am still a huge believer in the in the deep process that is psychotherapy Mm -hmm. um what i found was that so often what i was doing was coaching and if if i could define especially individual psychotherapy as the process of, of working deeply with someone's unconscious bringing i think if it's being done properly it's bringing unconscious material into the room and the slow gestation of that where the clinician is being quiet and allowing that stuff to, to emerge. Uh, the, the work of at least coaching the way that I do, uh, is about the the clinician, me as the clinician, uh, working more actively about how do we make your life right, right now? And where do we zoom in on, uh, I know this is kind of an old expression, but the value of the well-placed thumb, Mm -hmm. the how how do we locate, where is that place where you're really stuck? Here's the manifest surface place where you appear to be stuck and where you come in thinking you're stuck and me, me uh, sort of sifting out where you're actually stuck and pushing right there where it just shifts. Uh, And, uh, and, and I I found that uh, I really took to that work. And so uh, in a way, the work of coaching chose me.
0: Is what kind of almost how it, how it uh, feels to me. That's a great description. Um, well, you wrote a great book t- uh, titled mm-hmm. "Anxious Anxious to Please." When what year did you write that? It was published in two thousand six. Two thousand six.
1: Uh, yes, with my dear friend uh, Craig English. I want to make sure that I uh, give credit to my
0: co-author Craig English. Absolutely, and you know, in the book, you talk a lot about people pleasers, nice guys and nice girls. Um, And I'm going to read a Sam Keen quote here in just a second. But, you know, a lot of people might wonder what is wrong with being, you know, a nice guy, a nice girl. Isn't that the goal is to always be kind? I mean, you hear this a lot. Um, I see a lot of men um, in my life or in my path that I that I travel that are stuck. And I, myself used to be a chronic people pleaser. It took um, inner development and doing the mankind projects training to sort of, um, uh, shed light on that shadow. But I was one of these people that was the same way I couldn't say, no, I was just chronically nice. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people that know me now are like, really, I can't even picture that, but it actually was the way I was for many, many, many years. Um, and so I want to give you a a chance to talk about that, but I wanted to start by reading a quote from Sam Keen that I had in my book. Actually, Sam Keen wrote it in fire in the belly. Mm. And he says, quote, for men and women to love each other, we must learn to respect each other's anger without anger. We have no fire, no thunder and lightning to defend the sanctuary of the self. No anger equals no boundaries equals no passion good men and good women have fire in the belly we are yeah. we are fierce don't mess with us if you are looking for somebody who will always be quote unquote nice to you and then he says nice gets you a c plus in life we don't yeah. all. we don't always smile talk in a soft voice or engage in indiscriminate hugs in the loving struggle between the sexes we thrust and parry unquote so I wanted to give you that to work with as well and just you know what is wrong with always being nice I guess is my first question <laughs> yeah
1: and what a, what a great quote I'm sorry that I kind of interrupted yeah. your flow no 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 yeah. it's
0: all good man yeah
1: a, a, a couple of amens from the mm-hmm. congregation
0: here
1: mm-hmm. uh, I love uh, Sam Keenan I love that book um he uh and boy i wish i could i could pull this up as I, I think it's from fire in the belly he has some wonderful uh quote in there about in a in 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 deep friendship you know a pledging loyal opposition or something do you know mm. the one i'm referring to yeah concrete? yeah
0: ex- exactly exactly yeah be yeah yeah I, I love that i'll pull that up and put that in the uh the end of the episode actually
1: Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, uh, okay. So you're asking what a wonderful question, especially in the start of our thing. Uh, and you used a a particularly important uh, term chronically nice. So you ask what's Mm -hmm. wrong with being nice, Uh, nothing wrong with being nice. Uh, and you distinguished two words that are often conflated, nice and kind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and those are not the same thing, especially uh, in the way that I like to use them. So in my book, in the way that uh, well, in my literal book, but also in my way of uh, thinking and talking, uh, nice is about greasing the skids. It's about being polite. It's you know, you open the door, you say please and thank you. It is of limited value. So yes, it's sort of social graces, uh, and used in the proper context, sure, it's fine. You know, uh, kind is something different. And I think it's important. It's really highly useful. And I strongly encourage people to begin, if they're not already, begin using those two words in very different contexts. Kind is something where you're actually doing something positive, something that is uh, uh, brings about goodness. Uh, and uh, kind, I would point out, the root of kind is the same as the the word kin, which is so. It really essentially, when you're doing a kindness for something, you are treating them as kin. Mm-hmm. uh and and it, uh, the kind a kindness something kind is substantial it's it's meaty and uh part of what what can be actually useful if you wanted to uh, if a person wanted to kind of contemplate this you could think about the the number of things that are nice but not kind the things that are kind but not nice right. for example for example if you are uh if you are confronting somebody about their behavior. That is kind, not nice.
2: Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And there are a lot of things that there are a lot of things where, uh, you know, the, you can kind of picture a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a situation where the lady down the street who is who is saying, oh, well, isn't that nice that you're doing that? blah, blah And she's being nice, but definitely not kind. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, is the, the veiled criticism.
0: Yeah, well, and I and I was just as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it's called random acts of kindness, which has power, not random right. acts, of night of niceness, ni- nice. right? And right. I and I was thinking too that kindness entails an intention, a deep intention, where niceness sounds, it, it comes from almost like a subconscious script. You're not really thinking about it; you're just. Yes. You're just yes. painting painting over everything the same way you always do, right? <laughs> yes,
1: correct. Yeah, exactly. So I am not I am not advocating uh, necessarily an overthrow of everything that's nice, but nice fits within a cultural context, and yeah. and it, like I say, it's 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 always going to have sort of a shallow value. Uh, I, I I have sort of tongue in cheek, you know, set, threatened to make a bumper sticker that basically says uh, "Screw nice, be kind."
0: yeah i like that
1: yeah i might do it someday yeah uh, but yeah. but that's 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 the deal that's why uh, that's why uh and and when we talk about what's wrong with being uh nice what's really wrong is being chronically nice and chronically nice means that means a compulsivity that is that the person is now being nice when nice is not what's called for mm-hmm. you, you know mm-hmm. where you know it's sort of like they're they're walking a the person is walking toward uh, the door to go into a building and then someone strides in front of them, elbows them aside and grabs the door. And the, the person apologizes anyway. Right. And says, Oh, I'm sorry. you right. That's chronically nice.
0: Yeah. I, right. I see, I see people that, uh, you know, I might, they might ask me for my advice on something. They might say, Hey, you know, I've got this thing and you know, I just don't know what to do. And then you ask him or her about it. and like, well, I don't want to. I'm like, well, then, just say no, and they're like, "It, it is. Yes. It, it lands as like, oh my god, I could, I could never, you know, say no." And I'm like, "But that's what you're saying you want to say. Why don't you that's just right. say it? They're going to get over it." And it's like you could just see the person is stuck in a chronic good girl, you know, like, oh, I yeah. that was, that sounds so harsh. I'm like, well, it it really doesn't. It just draws a boundary, and you can do it in a in a in a kind way, and just say, "I'm not interested in doing that." But you can see them spinning like, you know, they're getting overwhelmed, just entertaining the thought of saying no to somebody's request. <laughs> you know what
1: I mean? So Yes, yes that's exactly so, right. That's yeah. exactly right.
0: So why are nice people, quote unquote, always anxious? Like, why, why does it come with so much anxiety? What's the dynamic? And, and you say in the book that it always appears to be circumstantial, the anxiety. And I was going to ask you like, what's the dynamic there? Why are, why are nice people so chronically anxious? I guess.
1: Yeah. You could, you know, in the example that you just gave, you yeah. know, you could feel the anxiety in there, mm-hmm. you know, that thing where, where the word no was absolutely what was called for. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Chances are really good that, that if we knew the circumstance, uh, no would probably even be acceptable in so many of those cases. And yet they, they froze. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so when we talk about the nice behavior being compulsive, there's always an anxiety that drives it. There's always an anxiety underneath it. And when it's compulsive, that is, it's not a circumstantial thing. It's not. It's not one of those things where the person normally can say no, but in this one circumstance, they can't. It's a compulsive thing, so they qualify as this chronically nice thing. Mm-hmm. The the compulsivity has an uh, an emotional injury underneath it, and the emotional injury is reliably going to go back years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know if we'll have time to, you know, to get into uh, all of that uh, today. Uh, we certainly can if you want to uh, try to go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our our brains, particularly when we're talking about explaining oh. our behavior, explaining our behavior that's built into our own minds and our own psyches, our brains really don't like that. It's mm. deeply it's deeply upsetting to think there's something wrong with me internally. Yeah, you know something is misfiring. Something isn't working. And so, the way that our brains work is that rather than have and then explain something in that way, we would much rather grasp at something much more uh, immediate and mm-hmm. something that's very local. So, to illustrate, if you were at your studio there and there was a loud bang uh, uh, outside, mm-hmm you would not be able to stop your brain from immediately coming up with an explanation. Now the explanation might be wrong and you realize that, but before you could even start looking around, you would, your brain would immediately start thinking, uh, Oh, car backfired or, uh, you know, the the North Koreans have invaded or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, your brain would begin, uh, come up with hypotheses. Yep. You, you can't stop your brain from doing that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, it's going to do that in a very particular kind of order unique to you that has to do, in a sense, with your preferred hypotheses. Mm. Uh, and the last one that your brain is ever going to hypothesize is that, that you made up that bang in your mind. Mm -hmm. Even if you know that you have had a diagnosis, uh, such as schizophrenia that involves uh, hallucinations, even if you know that you've hallucinated bangs in the past, Mm -hmm. because it's so deeply disturbing to think this disorder came from within me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. Does
1: this make sense so far? Yep. Okay. So, When you have a nice person, a chronically nice person, who um, who is in a situation where it normally wouldn't make sense for them to be anxious. In other words, you know, it's this. This person's a friend of mine. I just have to tell them no. I don't want to come to your party. Uh, You know, and they're breaking out in cold sweats, and they're you know they're thinking, oh god, what am I going to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't. They're just going to be averse to thinking. I have an emotional issue that I haven't resolved yet. So it it actually takes some time, some, some process of personal work to get to the place of like, uh, I'm coming to the point of confronting myself and saying, I actually have emotional issues and that's why this is going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it takes a while even to notice there's... Uh, What's a way to say it? There's kind of some internal blowback from doing it. I mean, I was a happy-go-lucky, nice, charming young man, uh, and I just rode that. I played that strong suit all over the place until I was like, wait a minute, This this is starting to feel a little inauthentic. I don't have any other ways of responding, and as I got into therapy and started to look at it, I realized... I get all my validation from other people. I don't validate myself. I, I look over there constantly. I have since I was a little kid. And wow. then I just took that pattern and just said, okay, it's going to be my girlfriend or my wife or the people that I meet at a party. I need validation over there in the form of laughter, smiles, uh, people like me. And so then I started to build kind of this you know, this suit of armor, if you will, or or just like I'm building a strong suit of ways that I express myself. But then I'm, I'm cutting off every single other way of being out in the world as a man. As I grew into manhood, I realized, uh-oh, this suit doesn't fit me very well anymore at all. Yeah. Actually, I'm tired wow. of being the happy-go-lucky young guy. And I'm, you know, in my 30s now. And, you know, am I going to grow into a mature man that's got more gears? Because all the men that I looked up to it, particularly when I got into doing men's work, they had they had gravitas. They had they they weren't always smiling and patting it, you know, and trying to be like the way I was. So they they modeled a particular form of masculinity that said, Um, you know, that's for the younger, you got to grow out of that. If you're going to really step into your mission, if you're going to speak truth, if you're going to be, uh, you know, have, if you're going to grow this kind of soul and spirit in you, you're going to have to set that immature pattern aside. It just took me, it took me a good long time to kind of tease out what was underneath the pattern. And then, you know, in, in the right setting, start to express other sides of me and then have that be well-received, which I guess is another way of saying I was still seeking external validation but i could sense inside of myself it felt like the correct direction to start to spread my wings a little bit more you know what i mean oh
1: absolutely and that's a hell of a journey isn't it
0: yeah yeah i mean
1: it, it, it the the awareness that you're talking about and i think we'll touch on awareness mm-hmm. uh, in a little bit but mm-hmm. that awareness process that you're talking about is uh it's so raw it's it's yeah. and and boy it just draws on every bit of courage that you have uh, to to be in that state for a while, mm-hmm. where you see you see that about yourself without without yet being able to change it. Yep. And the vulnerability yep. of that is tremendous uh, before before you're able to to change it. Uh, so uh, boy, I, I just have utmost respect for you going through that. Oh, with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: and you've taken a lot of men through their own hero's journey. I would imagine through all the work you've done, you've, you've helped usher them out on their edges, right? It's really what we're talking about. I've, I've done it a yeah. lot of, in episodes where I, I try to help define courage because uh, I know a lot of courageous people and the the courageous people that I do know work out on their edges. And, and that means, you know, dealing with themselves, dealing with their shadow their addictions their their self-loathing their childhood wounds i mean there's an active participation in the alchemy of you know what am i growing into what does the world need from me you know uh as as a man it's 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 you know i brought this so far at this age let's say you're in your 30s as a man uh you might need to be a different version of yourself in your 40s 50s and 60s to really live in mission to really live in your heart to be all you can be as a man, you know, as a lover, as a, as a lover of the earth, as the people and to really represent there's, there's usually some inner work and some inner alchemy that has to be done. That's part of the hero's journey. It's usually not just handed to a guy like, you know, Oh, you're just going to magically grow into this person. You you've got mm-hmm. to, you've got to roll up your sleeves and notice shadow and, and, and take coaching and take, you know, therapy where, where people are getting another set of eyes on your shadow. Cause it's difficult to, to tease out on your own, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah. I, I don't know anybody who, yeah, me neither. Who, te- who teases it on their own or mm-hmm. who hasn't, has, an, has a, an easy path. You know, uh, I, I, I'm about to turn 64 and, mm-hmm. uh, it, it hasn't gotten easy yet.
0: <laughs> no, no, not at all. Nor for I. So yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well let's talk about, yeah, in the book you, you mentioned, um, Yet a short list. I love this, a short list of ways that nice people suppress the experience of anxiety. Um, and so I thought I'd let you read them out. It's the cloud, the drug, the cover story, et cetera, et cetera. And just kind of, yeah, just kind of briefly describe like these coping mechanisms for dealing with anxiety and I'll, I'll chime in when, when it's appropriate, but I thought I'd, I, that might be a useful list for people and see if, see if you recognize maybe one or two of your own coping strategies uh, as you deal with your own anxiety. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll start the list in saying these are uh, what I would refer to as reflexive defenses. In other words, these are these are things we gave them names, but every one of them, these are not things that people thought about and then started doing. They just right. kind of came out uh, reflexively, and they come out reflexively. So, part of the uh, the the power of them comes in beginning to recognize them and and say even before even before they start to change, just going, oh, I do that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first one that we mentioned, the cloud, and uh, the the cloud is this thing where uh, in, instead of of being with your anxiety, uh, things just get foggy and cloudy. And usually, it's not just a numbing kind of thing. It's it's this thing where it's hard to think straight, yeah. and you get into confusion. I was thinking about this really uh, uh, th- a three line poem by uh brian andreas if i remember it correctly uh there are your sun people and your fog people she said i don't know which one i am he said fog will do that to you she said (laughs) (laughs) isn't that that wonderful yeah that's great (laughs) okay so that gives you a little taste of the cloud yeah the the drug um is kind of easy to understand except you should understand that we're not just we're not only literally talking about drugs whether it be illicit drugs or prescription drugs or alcohol or caffeine but also we're referring to anything really that you that you use an external thing like uh shopping adrenaline uh you know gambling anything external that you use to propel you now i i I will say um somebody might be listening and thinking, well, aren't those all the addictions? There's a reason and I'm not going to get on my soapbox now that uh, most of those things I don't refer to as addictions. I do think of them as compulsions, which can be equally damaging. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a reason why I'm not. But but essentially, the, the, the bigger point here is this is rather than uh, sort of a uh, $10 word here, psychogenically doing it to yourself like you do at the cloud, yeah. Uh this is something where you're taking something external and saying, I'm going to use this and take myself on a ride.
0: Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is one I've been really fond of my whole life. Actually. <laughs> it's yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Just what, you know, drinking, smoking, internet, sex, uh, you know, yeah. f- food, sugar. This is one that I've, I've really had to continually to watch and observe and try to understand because it's like, I just want to, you know, and it can be it's anxiety but it could be boredom or restlessness any feeling that doesn't feel very comfortable i want to do some activity that is you know going to take me away from my usually my boredom restlessness and anxiety and yeah. it's just reflexive it's like it's like autopilot you know i'm like watching myself go and stuff three cookies in my face just because it's not because i'm hungry just because i want some other you know input other than my boredom you know
1: yeah, exactly yeah exactly and you know i was thinking about this uh, just recently uh again and people often don't don't think of this or don't notice it but when we talk about a symptom a symptom is a partial solution like usually we just think of symptom as, you know, like that's the bad thing and it's negative and everything like that. Right. But a, a symptom wouldn't remain a symptom unless it partially solved your problem.
2: Right, right. <laughs> and yeah, that, yeah.
1: That, that's kind of the, you know, the the, the hitch of it yeah. is, is that it partially, you know, so that's, you know, when you talk about that, like, uh, you know, uh, for certain people and you're saying to yes. you, you know, part of the problem is these things kind of work.
0: I know. I know, and, J- and J- James, you know, it, it's almost sometimes it's accompanied with this voice in my head that says, "I'll get to the bottom of this later." You
1: know what I mean? Yes. Like,
0: you know, right. like yes. I'll solve this later, but right now I'm just going to, you know, alleviate. You know, it's
1: oh, oh, oh yeah, it's it's, it's 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 the wimpy deal, or a wimpy from uh, Popeye. You know, <laughs> totally, I'll, totally. I'll, gl- I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for hamburger today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly,
0: that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yes. So, yep. Yep. Okay.
1: Okay, so the the, uh, the next one is the cover story, uh, which is the the in the cover story, uh, the person, and and it's so much easier to spot in someone else than in yourself. But you 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 have this this neat and tidy story about your happy, healthy life.
2: Oh yeah,
1: and and nobody else can penetrate it. Uh, it's much easier to spot in someone else if you know that people do this. A lot of times you don't or a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, as a as a clinician, I know to look for this. Mm-hmm. It, it it especially pops out when I'm talking to people about their own childhoods, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'll be just talking with a couple, let's say, and I'll say, and, okay, uh, you know, Joe, how about you? What was it like growing up? And he'll, and what I'll get is two sentences. Yep. You know, it's not, well, when I was three and then when I was 15, then right. yep. like, it, it'll be like, oh, it was all great. My parents were awesome, et cetera. Nothing to see here. Let's move along. Yeah. 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 Right. Yep. Uh, and, and a lot of times people will say that about their relationship. It's like, Hey, I'm doing great. Everything, everything's yeah. fine. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and it's one thing if you don't know the person very well and you're at a, at a party and everything like that, that's fine but if, if it's, if it's, that's some, you know, so people, people get themselves to buy into that, et cetera. And then suddenly, you know, oh my God, we're getting divorced, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. So that, that's a good sign. I,
0: I see some of the cover story too, on social media, particularly like Facebook where you see well, all the great, you know, everything is just fantastic. There's a little bit of that, you know, where sure. you're, I mean, I, I guess it's, in people's natures, they're not going to show pictures of them fighting on the face no, no, you know, right. but, but it, it does create this kind of like look at how great my life is. Yes. No, no imperfections, no shadow whatsoever. This is just I'm right. all perpetually on vacation laughing yeah. with my loved ones. You know, it's like, well, I don't know if that's the truth, but okay, you're you're posting that out a lot. So yeah.
1: Yeah. No, no, social media has been terrible for it. Uh, yeah. Facebook in particular is um poorly understood but facebook is is really an envy making machine yeah and 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 that's what that's what propels it and so especially for people who are vulnerable to this yeah yeah it's part of it yeah so the uh the armor uh i'll just say quickly uh we talk about um the armor is a very specific one and Mm -hmm. people might recognize this you are literally using your own musculature uh to keep yourself from feeling things and Mm -hmm. you, you react immediately tighten up. And I'll just put this little, this is like a little post-it note. If somebody wanted to explore this further, Mm -hmm. Um, a very, very high percentage way up in the upper nineties. If this is your reflexive defense, there's, there's uh, emotions coming that you don't want to feel, or you don't like feeling or the stops Mm -hmm. you've been feeling. And you, this is like, you know, you wish you didn't do this, but you do yeah uh and you tighten muscles <clears throat> um it's almost the certainty that you started doing this in your first three years of life mm. so that would be if you kind of wanted to follow up and figure out what's this about and what was going on in my first three or four years of life that's that's very very high likelihood it started there unless you had some sort of later PTSD thing you know okay. sometime later on you know you had Kind of some really awful experiences, but other than that, started started in your early childhood.
0: Okay, got it. And what's the next one? Sleight uh, of hand.
1: Slight of hand. Slide of hand uh, you know, again, this will be familiar, and and if you track someone else, it's easier to see in them than in yourself. Mm-hmm. But you have the you you have this defense of trying to solve other people's problems rather than your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, if you get to know somebody who like their own life is a mess, but they're always, you know, kind of doing the paint and plays, drama, micro drama in other people's lives at giveaway. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then the last one, the tough one pan uh, you, you have these kind of feelings of upset and people ask you about them and they always say, no, no, it's just this, this other thing, the next drama that happened to me. I'm not, yeah. it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's because You know, it's because my my friend whose cousin had a dog that then it's not that dog that died. But the one before that, they reminded them of the dog that, died. you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's never them. It's always over there. And there's always often drama. Right. Drama created. And it's over there. It's not me. It's never me. I don't have to look at anything. It's just, you know, it's it's the next drama. Uh Oh, it's somebody's doing something to me again. And uh, and it's causing this reaction in me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's that, that's right. Yeah. So so I I wanted to flip to the other side because you you list these seven transformative practices in your book as a as a roadmap for growth and mastery and they're really really useful. I I thought I'd I'd start by um, listing them and then we'll go one by one and you can just describe what they are. Um, and so the seven are the first one's awareness practice. The second one is desert practice. Uh, the third one is warrior practice. The fourth is brother and sisterhood practice the fifth is family practice the sixth is disillusionment practice and the seventh is integrative or integration practice and so i thought i'd give you a chance just to let us know and then we'll talk about is it good to take them all on is it good to focus in on one or two how do you pick but i'll i'll, I'll let you describe um th- these one by one briefly um so the first one's awareness practice uh and what is your definition of that or what is that exactly for any of your
1: your listeners who are familiar at all with Eastern stuff, awareness practice is probably at least eighty or ninety percent what you think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is we included it uh, here partly because it is the baseline yep. for anything that follows. Yep. And and I want to emphasize when we say when we say practices, uh, we're talking about an ongoing process. We're not talking about you know, so that's why we didn't call them steps.
0: Yeah. You know, it's not do this, and,
1: do this and get done. Yep. Okay. So o- awareness is sustained attention to thought feelings, body and behavior. Mm-hmm. And it un- it underlines, it underlies everything else you do. Yeah. Desert, desert practice. Um, and I know we don't want to spend a lot of time on each one of these things, but uh, desert practice is easily misunderstood. But the idea is, Uh, For desert practice to be time limited and you pick something that you're going to pull back from, it could be anything Mm -hmm. uh, that you think you could benefit from. You're pulling back from something that's normally in your life for the sake of of studying yourself Mm -hmm. and for uh, uh, being able to practice solitude and to uh, kind of especially to be with yourself. Mm. To, experience, to experience yourself. And we encourage uh, a, a sort of a structure that goes with that, uh, what I call adding an, an until clause. In other words, I'm going to do, I'm going to like uh, not eat sugar, anything sugary until this happens. Okay. And that's, that's how I know we'll, I'll be done with my desert practice.
2: Mm. In,
1: instead of, you know, so this isn't, I'm not doing this to get off of sugar, Right. I'm I'm doing it to 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 potentiate an internal shift.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If that if that makes sense.
0: Yep. Yep. That's that's different than I thought. I I. So you're including going without, you know, X or without a behavior or a substance or something could be included in desert practice, not simply. Say going on retreat or going out uh, by yourself for a week someplace where you get solitude and alone time. It could be literally, uh, I'm going to take this part of my life, remove it, and then examine using the awareness, examine what kinds of things come up as well. Yes. It would be considered part of that. Okay, I yeah, get. You. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I love the idea of doing doing the retreat, and mm-hmm. uh, it, you can certainly do it. It doesn't need to be a desert prayer does not need to be, uh, you know, ascetic. It doesn't need to be painful. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can structure it however you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you can structure it however you want. But one of the things is, you know, pay attention to, for example, if you're going to go on retreat, is is going on retreat kind of what you already do? Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. Is, is, is that sort of... A, Fancy term here, but egocentric for you yep. uh, to withdraw from everybody. Then yeah. maybe, maybe you need a different kind of desert practice to really stretch you. That's so.
0: great. That's great. Great insight. Yeah. Um, let's see. So the, then,
1: warrior practice. Yep. Um, the 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 way that we think of warrior practice, and again, um, a lot of people have different ways of talking about warrior. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's you know that's that's simply the name that we use to refer to this but we have a focus in terms of developing in a conscious and intentional way developing your own personal ethic kind of owning your mm-hmm. your ethic and yep. the practice of of developing and stretching your ability to hold intense emotions mm-hmm. so so that what you're what you're eventually essentially growing in in warrior practice Is your ability to feel intense emotions without having to reflexively act and then also being able to intentionally act uh, On the basis of your ethics.
0: That's great Yeah, that's great. We we do in the in the mankind project the way that this gets reflected uh, a man will create uh, a mission that he sort of puts his puts his flag in the ground uh and says, this is what my life's gonna be about, which is the ethics part. You know, he says this is this is what I'm gonna be about. I'm not just gonna drift. I'm not just gonna grab society's uh, you know, uh version of what I should be as a man as success. I'm gonna create my own that come from my heart and my soul. Um and then what what you said about the intense emotions, that's another thing that I think uh, they do well in that you're really trained when you come in there. Uh, to be a container for what's happening around you, not a reactive person where you're you're constantly reacting. You know, your wife gets upset, you immediately get upset back. That you create this kind of space uh, within yourself to. Uh, be able to see that, you know, other people can get upset and triggered. And that does not necessarily mean you have to follow suit. You can, you can observe with compassion. You can observe as a witness because you've grown this part of yourself, as you're saying, the warrior part of yourself, that's able to, be in your mature masculinity, where you can say, "Okay, my son's really upset, but that doesn't mean I have to immediately go over there and save him. I can just observe and see how he does, and 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 not go into any kind of reactive mode." I think that's another way of saying what you were saying, right? Oh,
1: absolutely, very yeah. consonant. Yeah. yeah, very much like what you're what you're talking about, and I really love that you use the word container.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, uh, I will sometimes use this analogy of saying, you know, if you've got if you've got two ten year old boys, and you know, they like to wrestle. Uh, you know, uh, very probably the, the living room with all the, the floor lamps and everything like that is not a good container for them to wrestle. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. But, yeah.
1: but you know, if you've, got a, if you've got a quarter acre out in the backyard, that's probably a great container for their yeah. wrestling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you thought of that same thing as developing this internal space that's a container for your your most intense emotions – People often think, you know, like anger management, for example, I hate that term, frankly, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that, you know, that one's anger, the idea is I got to learn how to tone down the intensity of my feelings. And I would say, no, 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 both within an individual and in the context of uh, like a a relationship, what we want is the full spectrum of the intensity of the emotions. We just need to build better containers
0: for them yeah, that's great. I love that. I'm in complete alignment with you on that. Um, number four is brotherhood and sisterhood practice. What is that about?
1: Uh, it is It is our belief that that people thrive by having the uh, the support and engagement of good same gender uh, friendships and mm-hmm. and relationships. Um, I don't know if you want to do a deeper dive than than that, but that's uh, you know, we we found that there was really good, uh, really good research that uh, supported that and that that was true, whether we're talking about straight relationships, mm-hmm. gay, bi, queer, uh, that um, that there there are there are lots of things to be gained from um, non romantic same gender relationships, uh, that, that are, uh, that, that we're, we're using that term brotherhood and sisterhood.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's great. I mean, part of, I think why I was drawn into originally the men's movement was for that very reason. I, I had, you know, I've been, I've been blessed with male friendships my whole life. I was an athlete. So I came out of, you know, the locker room in sports and stuff like that. So there was a part of me that was, Naturally jocular and made friendships quite easily but as I got older and got really interested in soul's journey and hero's journey and how do I how do I grow into a mature man um, I started to look for like-minded men and you know that that is been an absolute godsend is the friendships that have been created out of the men's groups that I've participated yeah. in now for 20 years and I think it's one of the the hidden things around something like the mankind project is you'll have you'll build lifelong friendships there that where you both are creating you know mission you're both in you know very you're being trained how to be authentic how to build your container like we've been talking about um and your emotional awareness and I think all of that coupled with you know Friendships that are deep and soulful. That's what I mean. There's so many men that it just breaks my heart. There's a ton of men out there that don't have a real good friend anymore. I mean, I know a lot of older men that. They've got yeah. their spouses and you know they've got their one buddy, but they only see their buddy like once a year maybe. and it's it's heartbreaking because I know how important and how nourishing male friendships are for men because I'm, I'm the recipient of many of them. And so um, you know I, I keep talking about how valuable it is hoping more men will find men's groups and will seek it out uh, as one of the benefits. but I, I can't speak highly enough of it because it has been such a huge benefit for me.
1: No, it's 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 absolutely true, and I've seen it over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. You know, um, at, at my age, I uh, I grew up in the you know in the '70s and the '80s in the the women's movement mm-hmm. of of that, and so when I uh, when I came to the field of psychology, I was sort of steeped in the in what was thought of as the egalitarian model, where of expecting there not to be any, any gender differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet from the very beginning, I saw, I saw differences and there was some idea that, uh, you know, some idea there that, that somehow men and women couldn't be equal. were yeah. if, if there were differences and yet, uh, you know, I just kept seeing that, uh, that uh, there, that women with women, came to life and men with men came to life in these really beautiful mm-hmm. and wonderful ways and so I, I feel like i understand some of the uh fears especially that women often have of men getting together what are they doing in there you Yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i like i get that and i get the skepticism uh that's that's baked into sometimes this idea of uh you know what are you saying that we're different you know that's going to lead to uh, you know, uh, women not being treated equally and and things, but, uh, I I know an awful lot of really, really good men who are deeply, deeply committed to egalitarian values and
0: absolutely, uh, you know, so. Well, and, and the other thing is if you've ever, if you've ever been in a men's group, a good men's group the truth just is coming out all over the place. It's like, you know, like as soon as one guy starts telling the truth, everybody's talking and it's not, you know, I told my, I've told my wife over, you know, we're not bashing on women at all. We we adore them, you know, and it's about stripping down and and being real with one another because we got to put on, different parts of our persona when we go out to work and we, you know, we got these different sides of ourselves to get exercised, And sometimes we need to just kind of sit back and, and tell the truth to a bunch of men that have our backs that understand us and understand these weird little things that men do and the things that we laugh at and stuff. And, and yeah, it's, it's super nourishing. I, I can't imagine going without it at this point in my life. So, um, and then what is, what is family practice? What is that exactly?
1: Yeah. Family practice this is a, a pretty unique uh, piece that that um, it has to do. You talk about a piece that 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 really adds a, a a great component to one's work. We talk about somebody gets to be you know eighteen in our culture and launches from their family of origin. Uh, everybody grows up in a context, you know, then the context of that family of origin. And um, family practice is is about the 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 reality that in so many in the cases of so many people who are chronically nice, uh, there is a there is some fundamental injuries of the dysfunction of that family of origin, and so we focus in family in, in family practice on a couple of different elements of really healing where that comes from. One of those has to do with uh, coming up with a cohesive story, uh, mm. and uh, this 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 part might sound a little bit odd. It's, so it's one of those things of like, trust me, this works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and okay. and it it is it is that you need to have a cohesive story about how it is that you got here based on the family that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the part that can be kind of hard to believe. Uh, you don't have to be right about your story. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not saying that it's okay to just like completely, uh, completely make shit up. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. I don't know if you swear. No, no,
0: you're good. It's all good. Okay. All
1: right. I'm trusting the, uh, the, the, the mix down process. Yeah. Yep. Um, But it's not about like making up things, you know, like, yes, we had a pet dinosaur. Uh, You know, uh, daddy didn't really die. It's not that. Uh, it's, it's that you take the facts as you know them and the experiences as you know them at this point, and you arrange them in a way that right now makes sense. Mm. And when you do that, you're going to have doubts. You're going to say, yeah, but is that like, uh, you know, I, I tried telling that to my mom and she said, no, no, it didn't happen like that. Stick with your version because that's the one that, that's the one you don't have to persuade her or anybody else.
2: Right, right.
1: Just, just go with your version. And here's the and and keep updating because yeah. as you go in a year, two years, five years, you're going to be at a family reunion. You're going to think back to that story. You're going to have a chat with Aunt So and So, and you're going to go, Oh, okay, update the story. You know, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. right. I can and, I can attest to I've. I've updated my family story, uh, many, many times, you know, many, many different versions depends on where I'm at in my life. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing actually.
1: Yes. And, and what you're, what you're saying there is perfect. That's exactly what, that's exactly what we want because the point, the thing that actually is healthy is not to arrive someplace where you finally get it right. Mm -hmm. The the thing that's actually healthy is to have a story. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and again that's the part where like some people might hear that and go wait can that really be true it is true that's the that's the thing it's not that you're being ca- cavalier with the truth but the thing is you're not going to get to the authentic you know like you're the detective you finally have arrived at capital t truth that's right. not the point right the point is it's really good for your mind for your heart to have a story this is my current version of how i got to be here Okay. This is how it makes sense. And quite a lot yeah. of times for a lot of people, for a lot of people, that's a progression from um, nothing bad happened to, yeah. oh, my God, I was a victim to, hey, I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor to, you know what? This is a complex story. And yeah. there was a whole lot of you see. So it, yeah. it reflects your own process and your own journey.
0: That's great. Yeah. OK.
1: Yeah. The other part that's really important about family practice is. Just is just that you make a commitment eventually that you are no longer going to adapt to your family rules in order to be accepted by them. Mm, hmm And that's just a promise that you make to you make to yourself again. I'll, I know. I know we need to move on, but that that's a that's just the other crucial part about family practice, and it it can just be uh,
0: revolutionary. That's great. That's great. And then uh, disillusionment practice. This was an interesting one too.
1: Yeah. Um, the, the practice of disillusionment practice, um, even if you weren't kind of following this specifically from the chronically nice thing, mm-hmm. I like to encourage people to think of disillusionment as a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if you think about the word, it's, it's really the, um, the letting go of one's illusions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and and so this is a, this is a, a really good practice, sort of for the for you know those who go where angels fear to tread. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. and 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 it's and it it, it you, you talk about something that is deeply linked to practice, the number one practice about awareness. You know, it's like when you come up against something and you go, oh, that's. That's an illusion I've been hanging on to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah. Okay. And you're, you know, it's like it comes in and out of focus for a while because your mind isn't even ready to accept that it's an illusion, and then you go toward it again and again and again, and eventually, as you are letting go of it as an illusion, you discover that you can bear that, you can tolerate, knowing that that's an illusion you've been hanging on to. So in our, this particular context, we're talking with regard to what we call the, the goddess prince construct mm-hmm. and and deconstructing that. Uh, and uh, again, I, I don't know how much you want to go into that. Uh, but,
0: well, but it, no, just, just, you know, the one thing I was going to say about this one is just that we're so uh, inundated with this, like growing up yeah. as kids, we get the Disney, you know, yep. Yep. Uh, every, every love story is about this, like this person that arrives, the goddess of the prince that arrives and just all of a sudden it's happy, happily ever after, like everything dissolves all, you know, you're just fulfilled on every level. And it's just, y- we absorb so much messaging that by the time we get to be old enough or we're starting to date and, and, and get out there, whether or not we buy that hook, line and sinker, we're carrying all that. Conditioning—it's like the water we're swimming in, the air we're breathing—and so you know, we find somebody that makes us laugh, or we get along, or we find a beautiful, you know, woman or a handsome man, and we're like, we pin our hopes subconsciously on this one. This is the prince, this is the goddess, right. um, and let's see. And then, and then, it's like the reality is like that's not what it is at all, and that's not what love is at all. And it's this, it's this, you know, the the learning that happened in the first part of my marriage uh was some of because of this this like i thought you were going to be the one that was going to solve all my issues (laughs) you know it's like turns out that could not you're going to actually push all my buttons as opposed to all my issues that's you know did i pick the wrong person it's like no i picked the right person but you were you were sort of poisoned with this like happily ever after goddess prince thing that we yes. all bought into. And so I, that's all I wanted to say is like, I, I'm somebody that I have a good marriage. I'm married to this wonderful woman. And I had to work through the disillusionment practice of like, this is not what you think it is because you were carrying a lot of preconceived notions about what this woman was going to mean to you. So.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that was really beautifully put and, and, and uh, described. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, did, I didn't want to go out here and, and like be sort of, uh, Sort of plugging my book and everything like that, but if people are really, really curious about that goddess prince construct, early in the book we talk quite a bit about that and what that's yes. about, where it comes from, and everything yep. like that. So. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. yeah. And,
0: then, and then the integration practice is the last one. What is that about? Uh,
1: it, it, it's it, it is you know ultimately integrating is what we want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously that's, well, I shouldn't say obviously, that's cyclical. You know, you don't like mm-hmm. integrate once and you're done. You know, uh, this, is, this is like, you know, you stir stuff up and you integrate and you stir stuff up and you integrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we have kind of two different uh, dimensions to that. One has specifically to do with these, these practices where you can look at it. And, you know, if you're somebody who is working these practices in specific, you can you can look at it kind of as a whole in a way of, of, of integrating the, the seven practices. Uh, but there's another way that we talk about, uh, which has to do with uh, what what I call a life as workshop. And it, it has to do with uh, developing an attitude and approach. In your life where there's the potential for everything uh, to be your laboratory, Mm. Uh, you know, uh, basically treating everything that 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 happens in your life as an opportunity to practice awareness, an opportunity to uh, to reflect on things, an opportunity to teach you. Uh, and again, you can hear that and, and say, well, Raphson, you didn't just make that up. No, that's absolutely right. I, 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 I did not. What I'm talking about is to, to simply say that this is an opportunity, uh, for, uh, not just that one principle, but for integration or, and when I say, so when I say integration, the emphasis is to see that as your lifestyle to 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 say we're integrating this into into our lives this is a way that i i bring this into my into my life um, it almost
0: it almost seems like that one and the first one are kind of meta practices right it's it life is, yeah. life is always teaching you and the awareness is is the awareness practice is the key um if somebody was to to kind of take a look at the seven, I mean, do you, do you pick, do you really like to focus on one or two if you're coaching them in this direction or, you know, is it, do you, do you take a look at all of them and say, Hey, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take on all these, or is it, is it best to kind of zero in on one or two as a, as a accelerator of growth? Let's say.
1: I, I never argue with anybody who's, who brings that question to me and says, I've been thinking about this one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, so if they're drawn to to any one of them, you know, I'm always like, yeah, go with that. Totally. Uh, You know, so that that comes first. If someone is is just getting started um, and wants to kind of discuss them and discuss where to start. I'll talk a little bit with them, but one of the things that I'll I'll ask them about is is to kind of get a feel for how much they know about uh, awareness practice, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they've done anything anything like that, if they know anything, because uh, that's also that's also the thing that that uh, when you, the better you get at awareness, the better you're going to be at. at anything else.
0: Absolutely. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on Basecamp for men. If people want to contact you, uh, or find your book, can they do that through your website? How do they do that?
1: Yeah, you can find out about me and the book on uh, my website, jamesrapson.com. And if you want to just order the book, you can, it's available, uh, it's available on paperback. It's also available on Kindle and also as an audio book. Uh, so, you know, amazon uh, audible.com, uh, so the the book is anxious to please
0: that's great and james thanks so much for coming on i feel like we could sit around the campfire and talk all night and uh i'd love to have you back on let's do it again sometime and thanks again for coming on and sharing your time and your insight and your wisdom really appreciate it
1: boy i enjoyed it a lot and i would i would love to come back anytime thanks tony
0: I hope you enjoyed our time with James as much as I did. To find James and his work and his excellent book, Anxious to Please, go to www.jamesrapson.com. That is Rapson with a P, jamesrapson.com. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.